our sermon text is from Acts 2, verses 14 through 41, and you can find it on page 530 in the paper Bibles. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say with confidence about the patriarch David that both he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. But there, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, just this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart. And Peter said, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. So today we are looking at Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And 
I really love first sermons. As a pastor in the church, I've got to be around for quite a few first sermons at this point. It's really fun to see somebody kind of breaking out of seminary and getting into the pulpit and finally giving, giving it their first attempt. And if you've ever been around for a first sermon, you probably know that usually uh, they're pretty rocky, right? I remember one guy uh, at our, another congregation where I was a pastor. During his first sermon, he ended it by asking everybody to stand up and make a vow, basically to do what he said during the sermon. <laughs> but even then, people were still encouraged. You know, they were like, you know, giving, clapping for him, giving him high fives. They were really trying to, to support him because it's a team effort, that first sermon. You really want it to, you want to encourage that guy. You want him to keep going. You want it to go well. But, uh, but Peter's first sermon is something else entirely, right? There is, is no, uh, nothing you can really compare Peter's first sermon to. In fact, I was trying to think of, of similar first performances, and the only thing I could think of was like Wilt Chamberlain's first game in the NBA, right? His first game, he scored 48 points and had 28 rebounds, which is nearly like the, the record today for rebounding. Um, that's the kind of first performance that Peter had, right? You can't compete with his stats on this first day. 3,000 people coming to faith at the end of his sermon. They went from 120 people in the whole church to over 3,000, like 2,500% growth in one sermon. I'd love to send some of our supporting churches some stats like that, right? Here's how things are going. Last Sunday, 2,500% growth. But, of course, uh, this sermon doesn't have a whole lot to do with Peter's skills. Um, it's a lot more about God than it is about Peter. It's a lot more about what God did that day than what Peter did that day. In fact, it was a unique moment, this first sermon. It was a unique moment in the history of salvation. This was the birth of the church. So instead of us focusing on Peter here, instead of us trying to pick apart his technique and maybe find what we can gain from it, what I think we need to do is look at how the Spirit moved that day. And as we do that, as we examine what the Spirit was doing in Acts chapter 2, I think we're going to find that this isn't just a lesson in church history. It's not some important things for us to learn about, but this is a passage that can show us how the Spirit continues to move, how the Spirit enables us today to hear the Word of God and to respond to it. So today I want us to look at the message that was proclaimed, the miracle that is displayed and the response that was given. So the message proclaimed, uh, the miracle displayed, and the response given. That's where we're going this morning. Um, so let's talk about this message. In Acts chapter 2, we're starting in verse 14, but we are picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, this was the miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost. So if you remember what happened, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And then the Holy Spirit descended and it looked like tongues of fire that landed on these 120 men and women who had been gathered and waiting. And all of a sudden, they start to, to proclaim the mighty works of God. And they do it in all these different languages so that all these thousands of people who are around, they see it and they understand it. They can miraculously hear what these people are saying. And as a result, 
Luke tells us, writing the book of Acts, that they respond. He says, all the people were amazed and they were perplexed and they were saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So that's where we're starting today. Peter, he starts out in this sermon and his first goal is to answer those people. What does this mean? And then the other people who are saying, they're just drunk, right? And so he tells them first, this does have a meaning. This miracle that you just saw, there's a meaning behind all of it. They're not drunk like you might think, but in fact, this moment is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It's the fulfillment of this moment that was talked about in the book of Joel when the Spirit of God was going to be poured out on all flesh and your sons and your daughters and your old men, they're going to prophesy. So, in other words, he's saying this sign that you're seeing, what you just witnessed, is the beginning of the end. We are now in the last days. We have drawn closer to that moment when God is now going to come and and judge the world when he's going to finally punish evil and and set righteousness back on the throne, where he's going to restore justice and goodness and peace. He says a major shift has taken. That's what this this sign means. Something has changed. Now what's changed? Well, uh, let's look at our passage here. If you've got your Bibles, pull them out. We're in Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, just take that one right next to you. We want to give that to you as a gift. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, We want everybody to have a copy. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. What has changed? Well, Peter says this. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. The 20 verses that come after that, Luke gives us a little summary of Peter's sermon. Uh, I say it's a summary because... If you read, Manny read the whole thing for us. It took like three minutes, right? This is just a little piece of all that Peter said that day. And we know it because verse 40, it says that he continued to, with many other things, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So this is just the main point. But in these 20 verses, if we take a chance to pause and look at it, what you'll find is kind of the key elements of the gospel message. Whenever you're preaching the gospel, whenever you're sharing what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done, those elements are right here. So first we see that that Peter, he tells them the facts of Jesus. He talks about Jesus living a holy life, about him dying for the sins of the world, about his resurrection. Then he talks about his exaltation, how he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he appeals to the history that they saw it. He talks about the things that they witnessed, how this was a real moment in history. But even more than that, he goes and he goes back to Scripture. So he says, here's where you can find all of this stuff in the, what we would call the Old Testament. Here's how you can find this in your Scriptures, right? Um, maybe you remember, has anybody read the Gospel of Luke lately? You know at the end, there's this moment when Jesus, after his resurrection, he encounters some of his disciples and he starts walking with them and he's teaching them. And it says that he opened up the scriptures and showed how all of scripture was about him. Remember that? Jesus says, all scripture is about me. Well, we can see the fruit of that 
in Peter's sermon right here. In the last uh, 40 days, Peter has learned this pretty well. And so in his sermon, he brings out this Old Testament prophecy from Joel. And he says, see how this is about Jesus. He brings out the Psalms and he says, see how this is about Jesus. And then all of that, this whole sermon, leads up to the people responding with faith. They believe. So, if there's something we want to learn from that, just from the sermon in general, I think we need to remember, as God's people, that there is a content to the gospel message. The gospel message has content that we need to share. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've heard that saying before. It sometimes gets uh, accredited to Francis of Assisi, where it says, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? I mean, if you think about it, it's like saying, you know, cook a meal and when necessary, use food, right? The gospel is a message. It's a message, and that means it, it has words. Now, I know, I know the idea, right? The idea behind the quote is Christians should live these godly lives, lives that are, are so upstanding that when people see you, they're going to wonder, you know, they're going to want to know, they're going to think that, that you're a Christian. But even that's flawed, right? That kind of, of thinking, that the main evidence of our faith is, is something that you're going to be able to observe by our morality, it, it assumes that the central message of Christianity is moral living. And it's not. Christianity is not just about being a good person. Look at Peter. Look at this guy who's preaching. A month ago, from when he's preaching. A month before this, this guy is cursing, swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, what's amazing here, what's amazing is, is not how upstanding a man that, that Peter was, but it's about how his life had been redeemed from the pit by the power of God. It was about how Christ through his death on the cross, paid for Peter's sin of betrayal and transformed him by the power of the Holy Spirit so that only a month later, this guy is standing in front of thousands of people declaring the truth of who Jesus is and the fact that he would be willing to die proclaiming the truth of that message. The gospel is a message with words. And if you're in the church, if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to proclaim that message. Christianity, it's not like any other kind of faith in the world. It is not some set of rules that you're supposed to abide by. It's not, here's how to live the type of life that's going to earn God's favor. It is the message that, in fact, there is a God, but we are all separated from him. We are all separated from God by our sin. We're separated from Him by not just by the bad things that we do, but, but also by the good things that we do that we think are going to save us. We're separated from Him because we have centered our lives upon lesser things in this world. We have lifted up these small things like our, our jobs, our relationships, our addictions, whatever, and we have put them in the center of our lives and made them our gods instead of him. 
The gospel is the message first that we are all guilty before God. But through Jesus, he has made a way to clean us. And it's not through a system of good works. It is through Jesus himself taking our sin upon him on the cross, paying the penalty of it, and then giving us his righteousness when we come to him in faith. So that's where we have to begin. There is a content to this message. There is a content to the gospel, and we are supposed to proclaim it with words. Then the second thing we need to see in this miracle, uh, in this passage, is the miracle that gets displayed. Okay? So here's point number two, the miracle that's displayed. Okay, so what is the great miracle that took place at Pentecost? What's the greatest miracle that took place? Was it the sound like a mighty rushing wind? Was it the tongues of fire that descended upon the disciples? Was it the speaking in all these different languages so that people could hear it? No. It wasn't any of those things. The biggest miracle that happened at Pentecost is in verse 36. Read it with me. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard it, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The most amazing thing that took place at Pentecost was that Peter stood in front of a crowd of thousands of people and he told them that they were guilty, that they had done something wrong, that something terrible had happened, and it was their fault. And they responded by saying, you're right, we're guilty. And if that doesn't seem like the biggest miracle to you, then you just don't spend enough time with people. Right? Because this is not how people respond when you tell them they are at fault. Right? What happens? When you tell somebody that they're guilty, that they've done something wrong, that they're at fault, what do we do? We defend ourselves, right? We blame shift. We, we minimize it. We certainly don't admit it and say, gosh, I'm so sorry. No, we say, oh, my fault? Well, well I, wouldn't have, I only did that because, well, you did this first. Sure, sure, you know, what I did, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but so-and-so is way worse than me, <laughs> right? Isn't that what we do? And Peter, he's not gentle with this. He doesn't, like, warm them up before he, he breaks the news. No, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, did they literally crucify Jesus? No, right? Of course they didn't. Pilate did that. Herod did that. The Roman soldiers, they're the ones that literally did it. Now maybe, sure, some of them had been there that night. Maybe some of this crowd had actually been there in the crowd yelling, crucify him, but, but certainly not all of them, right? Some of these people had just come into town. They were here for this feast of the first fruits. And yet, they say we're guilty. It's, it's amazing, right? Because Peter... He is really accusing them of what we might call today like corporate sin. He is saying that, that you all are collectively guilty. 
Whether you did it firsthand or not, all of you together participated in this and you are guilty of the blood of the Son of God. I mean, that kind of response is unheard of. Imagine if the Black Lives Matter protest began and immediately the white community was like, oh gosh, you're totally right. We are guilty. I had no idea. What do we need to do to make it right? We, we, we haven't acted like Black Lives Matter. Of course, we know that's not what happened, right? My point is, this is not normal. The way this crowd responds to Peter is a miracle. And it's a miracle that Jesus told us was going to happen. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus was speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, do you remember this? Chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what he says the Holy Spirit's coming to do. Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit bursts onto the scene with this big flashy moment, tongues of fire, a rushing wind. It's the signal that he has arrived, but the real miracle is here. All of a sudden, these people who had been so blind to their sin can now see it. These people who condemned Jesus to his death now realize the truth. It is the the visual representation of of Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Look, these people, this crowd, they were able to look directly into Jesus's eyes. They were able to see the man of sorrows beaten and battered with a crown of thorns, and they were able to remorselessly demand his death. And here... They're heart-stricken. Here, they are filled with sorrow over their guilt, and they are filled with terror over the consequences of their guilt. And you know what else? This miracle, this huge miracle at Pentecost, it wasn't unique. That miracle hasn't, didn't stop that day thousands of years ago, but it it keeps going. The miracle at Pentecost has actually taken place every single day since Pentecost. It's the miracle that a theologian might call effectual calling. Uh, Effectual calling, it's it's when God's Spirit begins to, to work in someone's heart to convince them of their sin and their misery, to enlighten their minds so that they can actually see who Jesus is. And then he renews our will so that instead of choosing other things, we would finally be able and desiring to choose Christ as our Savior. That's effectual calling. It's it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. 
Salvation is a miracle. Salvation in anybody's life is a work of God. Left on our own, without that work, every single one of us, we would be lost. We would be a world full of blame-shifting, guilt-minimizing, excuse-making people. But God, in his infinite grace, he comes to us, and the first thing he does is he exposes our sin. And when that happens, well, it hurts. That's how you know it's happened. The first thing is it hurts. I mean, these people, they are, they are overcome, right? They just realized that they are responsible for the death of the Son of God. Can you imagine? It, as I was reading it, I was reminded of a really powerful moment that took place at the General Assembly of this church's denomination. Uh, it happened a few years ago. Um, but, you know, that's like our national gathering where all the pastors get together. And this particular year, we had like a resolution uh, where the church was going to make a formal public apology for the sins of the Southern white church during the civil rights era. And there was an unfortunate amount of people who were not thrilled with this resolution. And the reasoning, you know, for a lot of them was, you know, our denomination didn't technically start till the late 70s. So they say, well, we weren't around for that stuff. You know, we didn't do those things. Why should we apologize? We are not really guilty of these things. And there was this moment where after a lot of debate, a man walked up to the microphone. He was an older pastor. He's probably in his 80s. And when he came to the microphone, he said, you know, it's true. Our denomination did not exist during the civil rights era. We weren't around then. But I was. And the denominations that gave birth to this one, they were. And back then, I didn't think I was racist. I didn't have hatred for anyone. I made a decision to stay out of what I thought were political battles based in theological reasons. And then, after that, he started to cry. And he said, but today, as I look back, I see that my brothers and my sisters in Christ, they were suffering. And I did nothing. He said, we are guilty. Folks, our faith, it doesn't begin when we start to follow the rules. It begins by an act of God. It is a miracle when we are convicted of our sin. And the message that Peter proclaimed to the crowd that day do you know it is the same? It is as true for you today as it was for them. This Jesus is Lord, and you crucified him. It is your sin that sent him to the cross. 
And you are responsible for the death of the Son of God. You're guilty. So what do we do? That's the question. And that's the question that the crowd instinctively asks, right? This is the response that they give. They say, brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do about this? When you truly recognize, when you truly see your guilt, when you truly see the burden of your sin, then that's what happens, right? You want to make it right. When you know that you've been wrong, you want to find out, how can I fix it? The crowd wants to know, is there anything we can do to make this right? And they don't just want to, to make up for the bad things that they have done, but they want to know, is there anything that we could possibly do? Is there anything that we could ever do to get ourselves back into God's favor after doing such a horrible thing? You can hear it, right? There's this certain desperation in the question. Brothers, what shall we do? Because, of course, it shouldn't be forgivable. It shouldn't be a forgivable sin, killing the Son of God. And when any of us, when we truly grasp the weight of our sin, we feel the same way. When you see your sin, you know that there is nothing that you can do to make it better. There is no way for you to atone for your sin. There is no amount of good things that you could do to make up for all the bad things that you've done, for all the pain and hurt and heartache that you've brought into this world, and for all the rebellion that dwells in your heart every single day. And Peter, his response reminds us of that. Because here's what he says. He doesn't remind them. He doesn't tell them, here's what you need to do. Here's some sacrifices that you should make. Here's some rules that you should follow. Here are the, the 10 steps to, to fix this problem. No, he says this, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says repent, which means turn. He says turn from your former ways, turn from your rebellion, turn from the wrong thoughts that you have had about God and instead believe. Believe in Christ. Believe that his sacrifice was for you. Believe that his righteousness is given to you by faith. He says be baptized. Take on this public sign, this spiritual seal, this acknowledgement that you belong to Jesus and to his people. Now, we need to do a whole sermon on baptism, and sometime, someday we will you know, explain what it's about. Um, but, but for now, let me just say, it's significant that Peter says this promise is for you and your children. He's talking about a community here. He's talking about generations. He's talking about a people. He's saying that the proper response 
to the good news that, that Christ is the King and that He has come to redeem you from your sin is that we would become a part of His people. That we would join His new community. I say this all the time, but there is no such thing as an individual Christian. There's no such thing as you and Jesus off on a hillside, and that's the sum of your faith. If you are, are called to Christ, then you are a part of the new covenant people of God. And when we enter into that community, when we become a part of those people, we take on that sign. We take on this sign of the new covenant. So like in the old covenant, when people took on circumcision, as a sign that they belong to God. In the new covenant, we take on the sign of baptism. It's a sign. It's a sign that, that we have not earned our holiness through the law, right? But that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. It's a sign that when Christ died and was buried, we were, our old ways died with him. And that when he raised from the dead, we're, we're raised with him to newness of life. Baptism, it's a sign and it is a, a, a spiritual seal that announces publicly that we belong to God. So he says, repent. He says, be baptized. And then finally he says, receive power. This is so glorious. We've been talking about it already, right? That the power to respond to the message of salvation, it comes from God alone. That we can't respond unless God shows up first. We are saved by his power. But right here, in verse 38, Peter tells us that God doesn't just save us by his grace and then tell us to go figure it all out. He doesn't do... You know, he doesn't save us and then say, okay, now it's up to you. You go, you go earn this. Right? Do you remember the end of Saving Private Ryan when Tom Hanks is dying and he looks at Matthew McConaughey? Uh, who is it? Which Matt is it? Matt Damon. He looks at Matt Damon and he says, he says, earn this, right, as he's dying. And I always think, what a burden to live life after that with this man's dying wish to be earn my life. But that's not what God does, right? God doesn't save us and then look at us and say, earn it. No, he empowers us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The same power that, that brought Jesus from the dead, the same power that saved us is now at work in us to convict us of our sin and to enable us more and more to, to die to that sin and then live to righteousness. More and more, day by day, God's Spirit is with us. So, as we wrap up, I think what I want to ask is, do you know that power? Do you want to know that power? If you want it, respond. In the same way these crowds responded, respond to Christ's offer of salvation. Don't be afraid that, that, that you've been too bad. Don't be afraid that he might reject you. Look at the guy who's preaching this. Peter betrayed Jesus 30 days beforehand. There is no one too far. There is no one beyond Christ's redemption, and you aren't either. And if you're already a Christian, which I imagine uh, a lot of us are in this room, 
I want to ask you another question. Are you still responding to the Spirit's conviction in your life? Are you letting the cost of Christ's sacrifice cut you to the heart? Or are you taking your sin lightly? Are you training yourself to ignore his conviction? Are you back in that place of minimizing and blame-shifting and excuse-making? Do you tolerate your sin and think God tolerates it too? Have you forgotten what your sin caused? Have you forgotten his love? Have you forgotten his desire to redeem you and to make you something new? Have you allowed yourself to be blinded again to your sin? I don't know if any of that strikes you, but but if it does, if that's where you are today, I want to invite you to open yourself up to the Spirit. I want to invite you to just take a minute right here and let yourself be cut to the heart again. I want to invite you to repent and to turn and to receive power. So let's take a minute right now, just like 30 seconds, and let's sit silently and respond to what the Spirit might be saying to us right now.